You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Pandit. This is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. It's been a busy week. Uh, lots of uh, missile news, uh, which you always know that I'm pretty into. Uh, we had, of course, the North Koreans launch their uh, longest missile or longest range missile since November 2017. But that's not what we're going to talk about on today's podcast. What we are going to talk about is China's military parade on October 1st, uh, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, was commemorated in a big way in Beijing. Uh, thousands of tons of military hardware, uh, very impressive military hardware, rolled down Beijing's uh, Chang'an Avenue through Tiananmen Square as uh, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party's Politburo Standing Committee watched over. And uh, really, it was a celebration of... Chinese unity, national pride, military modernization, and of course, the party itself. I mean, you know, I guess I guess by way of contextualizing the discussion, um, this parade is effectively the coming out of the newly reformed People's Liberation Army. In September 2015, when she also oversaw a parade in Beijing commemorating the 70th anniversary of Japanese defeat in the Second World War, um, that was also when he announced that the, the PLA would be reformed in important ways. Um, the Second Artillery Corps would become the rocket force. The new uh, Strategic Support Force would be set up. There would be cuts in the personnel of the PLA. Um, uh, in terms of ground forces, they'll be reorganized into new theater commands. So all of that has now happened. And this was really the unveiling of the new modern, leaner um, PLA. And um, mm. and really, I mean, the parade, if you were watching it live, uh, which I was, uh, it, it was really remarkable to just see the the emphasis on um, unity and loyalty and, and loyalty to the party. And that's one of the themes of, you know, Xi Jinping's new era. It's that the party comes first. And, um, you know, if you're watching the parade very closely, you notice that at the beginning when the honor guards presented the flags, the flags, there were three flags and they came in this order. The first flag was the flag of the Chinese Communist Party. The second flag was the flag of the People's Republic of China, and the third flag was the flag of the People's Liberation Army. So again, party, country, army. Uh, okay. But anyways, um, you know, I'll, I'll just lay out for listeners the way we're going to talk about this. So I think, Prashant, we'll begin by talking a little bit about the military capabilities that were on show, because I think that's actually, um, uh, at least as far as I can remember, this parade, I think, was one of the most exciting Chinese military parades in, in terms of the capabilities that were, were revealed. And then finally, we'll uh, move the discussion over to um, the regional reaction. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the results of a new uh, um, a Pew Global Attitude survey that show um, a decline, really, in favorability towards China uh, in uh, Asia and the West, primarily. Um, the different attitudes continue to persist in other parts of the world, but uh, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about in combination with this military parade, which I think very much was a show for both internal audiences and external. So uh, where should we start with the material? Um, I guess the, the first thing we should sort of talk about is generally you mentioned um, the fact that this was you know, the, one of the biggest displays of Chinese military might, I, I think, you know, depending on which of the media accounts that, that you've seen and the and the sort of counts, I mean, this about, you know, 40% of China's uh, weapon systems were, were on display. So there really were quite a number of these capabilities. So you mentioned and you did a few of those uh, capabilities analysis for us at The Diplomat. You mentioned the Dongfeng 41, the Dongfeng 17, the JL-2. These are some of the major ones that were on display. But I think as you rightly and correctly noted, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, not just about the capabilities, but also about 
showing this new modernized PLA, right? You saw in a lot of the media accounts that came out, they quoted former Chinese military officials and experts talking about the fact that, you know, China was very keen to advertise the fact that these are new, very integrated units that are loyal to uh, the Chinese Communist Party and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, as we know, one of the things that's really critical with respect to these parades is the fact that, I mean, China is not one of those countries that's very transparent with its military capabilities, right? Whether it's on its defense budgets or... So these are good opportunities to actually see, you know, and very rare opportunities to see actually what capabilities uh, China has and China is illustrating. Um, So I guess, you know, why don't we start maybe from talking about some of the major ones. So the the DF-41, the DF-17 and the JL-2, and then you can maybe go through some of the other ones that were on display too. They had unmanned aerial vehicles, a lot of the other platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that probably makes sense to structure it this way, to talk a little bit about the missile systems and then about the um, unmanned systems. I think those are really the two baskets of things that were most interesting. Um, so yeah, we did get to finally see the DF-41, uh, which is a missile that a lot of us that focus on the Chinese military have been you know we've we've caught a few glimpses um but you know if before this parade you'd googled for pictures of the df-41 you'd have found a bunch of pictures of the russian topol or other missile systems it was horrendously misidentified uh, there were pictures everywhere that were of other systems um but yeah the df-41 is china's most modern um icbm it's a solid fuel road mobile icbm in a canister so there were a bunch of these at the parade. Uh, they are capable of ranging all the way to the continental United States with um, multiple warheads, uh, multiple independently targetable warheads or MIRVs. Um, we don't know exactly how many warheads the DF-41 carries. There's, again, varying accounts out there, but I think most of them, at least the ones that say that it carries 10 warheads, I think are wrong. It probably carries something more like three, uh, mm-hmm. which is still pretty significant. Uh, the Chinese have done that on the DF-5, which was also being paraded. That's not the first time we've seen the DF-5 in a parade, or rather the, the DF-5B. Um, so yeah, the DF-41, I think coming out is pretty significant. Um, again, you know, I wrote an article for the New Republic about the conversation that's happening right now in the United States, or not really a conversation, it's more sort of a monologue that's happening, uh, (laughs) that, you know, I mean, uh, some people on the Hill are interested in bringing China into the new strategic arms reduction treaty, uh, which we actually talked a little bit about that on a recent podcast episode with Eric Gomez. So if listeners are interested more in U.S.-China nuclear dynamics, I recommend going back and listening to that podcast. It was just a few episodes ago. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, China showing off the DF-41, I'm pretty sure is going to result in more people talking about this. It's like, well, look, China's now turning into a a major missile power. Uh, of, of course, the reality is, you know, being a missile power doesn't mean that you're a nuclear power. China's nuclear forces are still very limited compared to the United States and Russia. They have about 300 warheads per the best uh, open source estimates. Um, and even while that might increase, even if it doubled, um, let's say in the next, you know, five years, it would still be under half of what the United States and Russia each have. So I think, I think you know, that's something to be aware of. Um, and then of course, the DF-41 um, being the big one, the one I think that most people are going to be scrutinizing uh, is the DF-17. Uh, that's the first hypersonic boost glide weapon that we've seen in a parade setting anywhere, and it's supposed to be the first hypersonic boost glide weapon to be deployed anywhere. Um, Russia has its avant-garde, which is sort of a similar weapon, although we've never actually gotten a good look at it, uh, but it's supposed to be deployed right now on some of its ICBMs. But this is a regional theater range conventional hypersonic boost glide weapon. Um, I can talk a little bit about what hypersonic boost glide weapons are and why they're special. There's a lot of uh, sort of 
I guess, panic about hypersonic weapons generally and how they're about to change everything. Um, a lot of that, I think, is a little bit overwrought. Uh, basically, you know, imagine a ballistic missile where you have a warhead on a booster, goes all the way up into space, and then the reentry vehicle separates, falls back to Earth. It's basically a, a parabola, if you want to imagine the trajectory. It's like throwing a rock on on earth's surface right if you throw a rock up at a 45 degree angle it would go up arc and then fall down you know exactly what it's going to do that's a, mm-hmm. a, a that's a dramatic oversimplification but basically that hypersonic boost glide weapons um you it you know it's still uh, uh, the boost glide component of the df-17 for instance will be shot up into space on a df-16 booster which appears to be the booster that's being used in this missile and then it separates and it begins to actually pull down and glide down and when it makes contact with the atmosphere it begins leveraging atmospheric lift and drag forces to then begin skipping uh, effectively imagine a pebble sort of you know skipping a pebble on the surface of a lake something like that so it it does that it accelerates to very high speeds um, in excess of mach 5 that's what the word hypersonic means and what that does, it, it makes uh, tracking the missile or, or tracking the the glide vehicle and defending against it a lot more challenging. So this is a concern for the United States in the region. Um, for instance, in a conflict, these kinds of weapons would be used against air bases, allied facilities, command and control nodes, possibly even ships, depending on the precision that's available. Um, what's interesting, though, is that at the parade, uh, the announcer clarified that the DF-17 was a conventional-only system. So right now... There's no intentions to make it nuclear, although, um, you know, when I reported on the DF-17 back in November 2017 for the diplomat, uh, the U.S. assessment was that it's a dual-capable system, which means that in the future there might be a nuclear role for it. But right now it's conventional only. Um, so I think I think I'll stop there on the two big missiles. I mean, we had others that we've seen before. We had the DF-26, which is the, quote, Guam killer, the intermediate-range ballistic missile that's pretty much designed for targets on Guam. Uh, it, it, it's a conventional and nuclear system. We also had the DF-31AG, which is another intercontinental-range ballistic missile with a single warhead. Um, and yeah, and, and, and then we saw actually one more missile that we know very little about called the DF-100. It looks like it's probably a long-range anti-ship missile, um, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, I need to do a little bit more uh, analysis uh, on that system. So I'll stop there with the missiles, but, uh, you know, if you have any follow-up questions, happy to talk about that. Yeah, one, one more thing. I think you made a brief reference to this in, in the article for The Diplomat, too, which was, um, you know, what about um, some of the platforms that we may have expected to see that we didn't see or or things that we might expect to see in a future parade that weren't unveiled? Oh, yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, I mean, I was wondering if this parade was going to be China's sort of coming out moment as a nuclear triad power. Uh, So China hasn't been a nuclear triad power for a while. The People's Liberation Army Air Force used to have a nuclear mission. That went away sometime in the late 70s or 80s. The the People's Liberation Army Navy now does have a very prominent uh, nuclear role. Um, China's Type 94 submarines carry JL-2 submarine launched ballistic missiles, which I guess I didn't talk about in the missile section. But yeah, we got our first look ever at the JL-2, which is China's second generation submarine launched ballistic missile. Um, It's sort of the DF-31 on a submarine. Um, but what we didn't get to see, and you know, it, the Pentagon's two most recent reports on Chinese military power made some very interesting assessments about the, the Air Force and its nuclear role. So two years ago, the report said that the Air Force had now been assigned a nuclear role after it hadn't had one for, I think, more than three decades. And then last year, um, it clarified, or this year, it clarified that um, the nuclear role for the Air Force would come in the form of a new air-launched ballistic missile. Uh, That's a little bit of an exotic weapon. Not a lot of countries operate air-launched ballistic missiles. 
but we didn't get to see that system. Uh, so the Chinese uh, didn't parade it. It didn't appear on a bomber. What did appear, though, is a variant of the H-6N, which is the Chinese strategic bomber that is expected to carry the air launch ballistic missile. And if you looked closely at the undercarriage of the of the aircraft's fuselage, you actually saw that the bomb bay doors were removed, which meant that it had sort of attachment points where in the future an air launch ballistic missile might go. So it, it was a little bit of a teaser. And arguably you could say that this parade was the closest we'll get to the Chinese triad being on parade because even if the um, even if the actual missile, uh, the air launch ballistic missile wasn't present, um, what was present was the H-6N, which is eventually going to carry that missile. So arguably if you have the JL-2 on parade, you have all of the, um, the DF series uh, nuclear-capable missiles on parade, and then you have the h 6 and flying over, arguably, you have the Chinese triad on show. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the the, the other part of this uh, conversation, if we broaden out a bit, is, you know, what sort of responses have we seen, um, you know, whether it's on, you know, we've had a number of, uh, you know, different responses on, on social media um, from folks looking at the parade, what uh, Chinese media uh, has been saying, what Chinese commentators have been saying, but there's also been a few reactions, at least, from other countries. So... Shortly after the parade, we had um, Randy Schreiber, the U.S. Assistant De Defense Secretary uh, for now Indo-Pacific uh, Security Affairs, speaking at Brookings, uh, sort of mentioning that, you know, these military developments are viewed by the U.S. as, you know, this traditional line as, you know, seeking to erode U.S. military advantages um, and that China is seeking, you know, essentially hegemony in, in the Asia, in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific. Um, and then you had also a, a number of reactions by, by other commentators as well, looking at I mean, what does this mean in terms of China behaving responsibly? You know, it has these capabilities, but, you know, in uh, China's pursuit of, to your point about internal and external audiences, as China is trying to look strong internally, which is clearly part of Xi Jinping's vision, you know, is it, you know, playing into this narrative of scaring countries abroad and playing into this narrative of China being a very expansionist and assertive power? So how would you sort of think about that in terms of the responses so far? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, I referenced that Pew survey at the, at the onset. Um, you know, this is all, so this parade is taking place at a moment when the whole world is talking about great power competition, right? It's no longer mm -hmm. just a Washington thing. Uh, in 2017 and 2018, it might have been, but now everybody's sort of taken note of the fact that the U.S. and China are in a protracted trade war. The odds of conflict are rising. China just released a, a defense white paper, too, before this parade um, in August, I believe. And uh, that sort of laid out the traditional objectives, uh, China's core interests, um, identified the unification of uh, Taiwan and China as a um, as a core objective that very much remains the primary war fighting scenario. And that's really, I mean, one of the messages here. I mean, look, I mean, as this was happening, uh, we still had I mean, we still had protests going on in Hong Kong, right? I mean, people were wrong when they said that China would never allow these protests to carry on through the October first celebrations. Um, Beijing has not cracked down. There was a lot of sort of brinksmanship and messaging, of course, over the summer, as we talked about on our recent podcast on Hong Kong. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, Taiwan has an election coming up. Um, relations between Beijing and Taipei are not in a good place with uh, Taiwan uh, continuing to lose its diplomatic allies to China with only 15 countries recognizing it anymore. Um, so I think, you know, with this parade, I mean, if you're sitting in Taiwan or Hong Kong, I mean, this is pretty ominous. I mean, especially in Taiwan, all of these missiles are largely going to be pointed across the Taiwan Strait. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, I mean, going back to Randy Shriver's comment about hegemony, it's interesting because, you know, I agree with the first part of what he said is that China is seeking to erode U.S. advantages, um, primarily because I think the PLA... Um, wants to be sure that if and when the day comes that they actually do have to fight a war against the United States, right? They haven't fought a war since the Sino-Vietnamese War. Um, and there's anxiety 
in in the Chinese military and in the Communist Party that the first time China fights a war, um, even a limited skirmish, if it loses, that's going to be a major problem because um, under Xi Jinping especially, uh, Chinese nationalism has been something that's been encouraged and fomented by the party itself. Uh, so losing a war or being perceived to lose a war could be one of the worst things that happens for the CCP's legitimacy domestically. So emphasizing mm -hmm. these capabilities, uh, pursuing all of these advanced sort of emerging technology-based systems. I mean, we didn't really talk about the unmanned systems. Maybe we can come back to that. But I think, um, you know, I think a lot of this um, really underscores that China, if, if and when it does have to fight a war, is going to fight from a position of strength and emphasize its advantages, um, you know, press on against the United States. And of course, in the U.S. now, there are a lot of anxieties about um, just how well positioned uh, the U.S. military uh, Indo-Pacific Command is really to compete with China in a conflict um, within the first island chain. Uh, China's abilities to uh, deny access um, are, are, I mean, at a very different place than they used to be even just five years ago. Um, and, of course, Beijing's uh, the rate at which China has been production, um, producing naval hulls uh, has really been out, you know, outclassing any other country. I think there was some s statistic that the total production of ships in China I think outclassed like the next eight countries combined or something ridiculous like that over the last five years. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, sitting across the region, it's it's, it's very difficult, uh, I think, to, uh, you know, look at this parade and walk away with the idea that that China is anything less than a military superpower in Asia. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, uh, Prashant, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you think the reactions are like in um, Southeast Asia? I'd be actually very interested in that, given the continued or I guess the continued friction uh, in the South China Sea, especially between the Philippines and China and Vietnam and China? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it you know, as you pointed out, with respect to the broader region, um, you know, it, it is kind of a similar line in Southeast Asia where you have these line of parades and commemorations. You know, you had this similar uh, situation happen, um, I think, earlier this year, back in April, when the Chinese Navy uh, commemorated the 70th anniversary. There was a big naval parade uh, China carried out an exercise with a number of Southeast Asian countries um, and sort of, you know, there was this, another a big showcase of Chinese military capabilities. And whenever you have these major events, you know, parades, it's always, you know, I feel like a, a kind of a mixed reaction. On the one hand, you know, it's this admiration of the vast capabilities that the Chinese have. But then also, I, I do think, you know, you, you kind of hinted at this with respect to the other things that are happening in China, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan. It does belie a lot of the challenges that China still faces and that Xi Jinping, I think, still faces internally. So, you know, you, you do have, you know, a situation in, in Taiwan and Hong Kong and Xinjiang where you have, you know, that China has handled these these situations as best it can, but there's just an unprecedented level of international attention and scrutiny um, with respect to what China is doing. And that, you know, I, I, I'm sure that uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party is facing challenges in dealing with that. But then also, you know, one of the interesting things of the parade was, you know, as it zoomed in on the picture of Xi Jinping standing next to, you know, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, it's, you know, on, on the surface of it, you see, you know, this very united front and, and show of, of unity with, uh, you know, within the Chinese Communist Party. But you, we also know the fact that, I mean, there are these internal divisions in China um, about what Xi Jinping is doing and whether the course that he's adopting uh, and the specific moves he's undertaking are, are what is best for China. So I think, you know, it, these parades, um, you know, they, they are a, a good way and, and a rare opportunity sometimes to get a sense of the capabilities that the Chinese have, but they also don't tell us a lot about how they're managing these broader challenges. I think for a lot of that, you have to sort of, you know, feel the pulse of what's going on in China more generally. And also, as you pointed out correctly, you know, read uh, China's white paper, uh, pay attention to Chinese military security, political dynamics, 
Um, and, and I think without that sense, and if you're only looking at the parade, um, you know, it'd be very, very difficult to get a full sense of what China's role is here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, going back to the white paper briefly, um, one of the themes there is the idea of a strong military dream. Uh, that, I mean, I mean, that is literally the phrase that appears, at least in the English translation. Um, and that very much relates to uh, Xi Jinping's concept of the, of the Chinese dream and a national rejuvenation. So I think, I mean, for, for the Chinese people, I mean, gathered in Beijing, watching around the country, the parade was really, I think, a moment for Xi to show them that, look, I mean, he is he is cashing the checks that he's writing on uh, in, in terms of pushing the country forward. Um, of course, um, you know, I mean, given given the resurgent nationalism, I think that's probably actually a good bet for the party that 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 kind of messaging will pay off domestically. But again, um, I mean, you know, th- these parades are being viewed across the world. And I think the perception of China um, is, is very much changing um, in a way that I don't think is in in um, in the long term interest of the Communist Party, uh, especially uh, in East Asia. So, yeah, um, yeah why don't we uh, leave it there for today? Sounds good. Great. Well, thanks for joining me, Prashant. Um, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast uh, for our listeners, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. You can do that on either iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. And finally, just a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private and public sectors not worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So, Prashant, I guess we'll be back next week with more. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone.